Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, welcome to episode two of Marek Makes a Movie, the film podcast where I, Marek Larwood, go and speak to different filmmakers about how they made their own feature film with a view to making my own feature film. How am I going to do that? Well, you can find out all about it on my website. Go to marylower.com forward slash Marit Makes a Movie or just click on the link there. So um, about two weeks in and I've raised, thanks to you kind donators, 160 whole pounds. And thank you very much to anyone who's donated via the website. Um, It is very pleasing. If you do donate five pounds or more i will send you a badge with a logo on it and a letter in the post which will be worth millions of pounds when this film wins three to four razzies at the moment i'm in the process of writing the first draft of the film it's a horrible experience for everyone involved i.e me you can find out more by going to website also the facebook page Marit makes a movie, the Twitter page, or also Instagram. That is a lot of admin. I even I'm bored. I'm bored already of my voice, and this is probably about two minutes in. I need to make it more exciting. Luckily, I am now going to speak to Bruce Webb, a man who has made his own feature film as well as directing lots of other television programs and films, and producing things and all that business. He knows. A lot more than I do, which is probably what could be said for most you know, pedestrians. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoy the podcast and keep it real. Marek makes a movie. He talks different filmmakers. He learns lots of things to put in his film. It's not that type of movie. I mean, it's probably the wrong music to give you the wrong idea. It's just as a normal film, alright? It's not anything, it's not dirty stuff, it's just a just listen to the podcast, alright? So here I am in, in Bruce's kitchen in what well, Elephant and Castle area. I can't reveal where you I won't reveal where you live exactly, Bruce. No no no, don't don't don't. Are don't. you in trouble with anyone? Is anyone looking for you? Uh uh no, actually, disappointingly, no one's really looking for me. So I'd, I'd, like, I'd, like, I'd like you to reveal the location so that <laughs> some people did go looking for me. So if but that's not going to be incriminating, though, if I say Elephant Castle? No, I, I, am, uh, I do exist in Elephant Castle, but um, 
and uh, and and another location which I think you know about. Uh, Bruce lives in London and on the Isle of Wight, so we're friends through um, Paul Allen, who was on the fir- first podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bruce is a director, filmmaker, producer. You've done all the business, haven't you, Bruce? Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I haven't mastered any of them, but I keep on changing jobs and, until hopefully one day I, I I actually get good at one of them. Yeah. But you have to do everything these days. Well, I was an electrician. Started as an electrician actually. On, oh, really? In the film business. Yeah. And then um, I was a spark on a feature film in 1992, one with Christopher Lee called The Funny Man. And um, and then uh, I was in the art department uh, for a bit. I had a job um, uh, wiring up tit lamps in a in a strip club. Scene. Hang on. Um, and, uh, Can you explain <laughs> it, uh, Yeah, it was a it was a it's a film by uh, a filmmaker called Simon Sprackling, uh, called The Funny Man, which was this uh, horror comedy, uh, very violent horror comedy with Christopher Lee, um, which which inspired me to go into the film business. I, I, I a friend of mine had very sadly been um, killed, uh, run over by a petrol tanker on his bicycle. Uh, he was a good friend of mine from school, and I had, I didn't know what to do that summer. I was at a bit of a loss. I was very in really bad grief. And a friend of mine said, uh, "Why don't you come and work on this film for free?" So I went. I went on this film. It was in a. It was an old mental hospital, and um, and yeah, I worked there for free uh, uh, on the short they did first of all, and then on the feature. And um, I think I was employed as an electrician. Yeah. So and one of the job, one of the scenes was in a strip club called Club Sexy. Good and, name. Uh, and Good all, name all, 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 all of the lamps were um, all the lights in the strip club were were were, were women's breasts. They were plastic. False boobs that they. Oh. So we had to. So we. And I was, I've. I've always been fascinated by electricity when ever since I was a small child, which has been quite dangerous for all our pets. But um, but I yeah. So I was quite good at wiring things. So they gave me the job of wiring all the tit lamps. I thought it was a special lamp that was used to be point at the strippers' breasts, so they were accentuated. Like, like, like a Fresnel or something. Is that yeah. what it's called? A Fresnel. Fresnel. No. Well, yeah. Oh, there's some great words in lighting. There's like gobos. That, that's quite a good. I've word. heard of gobos. I've heard of Fresnel yeah. before. There's blondes. There's redheads. Yeah, blondes. What, <laughs> what, are, what are blondes? Uh, I would. I can never get it right. I think a blonde. A blonde is a two k, and a redhead is an eight hundred. I think. That the K is the Kelvin, which is the strength. Three amps. Of the three amps to a K. I think it used to be. It's been so long since I've, I've done uh, sparking. Though I did, I did line produce a feature film a few years ago where the gaffer uh, constantly couldn't get out of bed, and I did find myself uh, the old magic coming back again. It's really difficult, isn't it? Even doing a three point line, it's difficult. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, yeah. You don't yeah. realise it when you're in. Uh, that's the difference normally between lighting. So sound and lighting are more important than people bang on about what camera you get and you know yeah. what uh, the quality of the camera. But if something's not lit properly or the sound's crap, it's. I think horrible. I think it's weirdly enough, a, a college I uh, teach at they, the, the cinematography students they take them to the Tate uh, Tate Britain and show them old masters um, as part of their training to show them how light falls oh, really? on subjects. <clears throat> and I think when you go when you go to a, when you go to an art gallery and you look at the way light falls on subjects, then you because it's because it's obviously not it's not a photograph so it's, yeah. it's someone's interpretation then you have a better understanding of how to light a subject in a film so become a um, a painter first become a painter Paint, first become yeah. a masterpieces <laughs> and then get a job as a spark on a film set incidentally I do know a filmmaker who uh, went to Slade Art School and he sells his art to pay for his shorts and, then, and he always always gets BAFTAs um uh, you should uh, you should interview him. Well, I can't remember his name. 
even though well, he's a friend. We'll, we'll remember his name. Um, now you, <clears throat> I watched your film last night, which is there's a poster on the wall behind. Okay. Uh, the be yeah. all and end all. He's cleaning. This. I really loved it. Well done. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, I'm quite proud of it, really. It feels completely different um, to anything that gets released now. Basically, the story it's the story of uh, two Liverpudlian friends. Yeah. And one of them finds out he has a heart disease, and then a, a, which is a sort of terminal, and he wants to, his friend to help him lose his virginity before he dies. And but the problem is he's hospital bound. Is that a fair description of? That's it? a very fair description. Yeah, I'd like to point out that lots of. Um, there were lots of films made after it uh, of uh, the same theme, but we, we, we did make the first one. So there was things like, I think there was a 50-50, I think it was made. Then there was, oh, yeah, there was a it. short film that was made that won a short Oscar. Um, so, I mean, I think these days when people see it, they think, oh, I've, I've heard of this film before. But actually, it was it was quite original when we made it. It's 10 years old, though. It's 10 years almost to the to the to the day that and we, you shot uh, that on film did you shot on Super 16 yeah and, and probably one of the last um, Super 16 feature films um, it certainly was the, the companies that made it are no longer with us unfortunately and, and certainly the labs the lab even, even the film supplier Fuji isn't, doesn't, doesn't uh, supply feature film film anymore so, um, so it, does have an, it does, does have a quite an old old fashioned look to it and, I, and, I, and it's funny you said it's not the sort of film that get released anymore but um I think, in, I think, in a, I think, in a sort of good, in a good way, that I felt quite refreshed by it. My, I used to like, I mean, the, the, the sort of, I really loved the Friday film special that were on yeah. in the eighties because yeah. it felt like, oh, this is a film that I can watch as a young person mm-hmm. that appeals to me, and it felt quite nostalgic as well, like that youthful thing, and mm-hmm. and and the actors were <clears> so unpolished and quite. I really like that. Yeah. And there's no think, one really makes films for this market anymore. It felt like. To I think. Me. I think. Uh, I think in the UK, and I don't want to go party politics on it, but there was a deliberate move by the government to, when they got rid of the film council um, in the UK to only support films that were going to make money. In fact, David Cameron actually said that publicly. So the reason why you're not seeing these films anymore is because they're not being made. And, and there's lots of other things involved apart from just politics and getting rid of the film council and getting rid of the regions. There's also DVD sales, obviously of we used to get, we used to make, you know, between five and ten pounds net on a DVD. That's that's just gone. That's completely mm. disappeared. That market. You can't buy a DVD anywhere. So how, from the can I, how can I watch this film? You can buy. <laughs> you can buy a DVD anywhere. You can buy a DVD of this online. Uh, you can watch it on iTunes. You can watch it on uh, Amazon. Okay. You can watch it. Watch it. You know, online. But but the profit. You know, the, the percentage we get is maybe ten or twenty p. Yeah. On a download, whereas we were talking seven or eight pounds on a, on a DVD many years, not that long ago. And so you must you must remember the Danny Dyer period of what was what will be known in history as the Danny Dyer hooligan period, which is now gone. You know, I mean, because if you sold a hundred thousand DVDs, you can make a million, and yeah. now you can't do that. So, so, but one thing I would say is that those sort of children's films like, like this, this teenage film, because I made another film a few years back called Social Suicide, which is also a teen teen movie. They're being made all over Europe, yeah. but we don't we don't watch them in the UK. We don't do live action for kids anymore, and and I think and. And, and actually, we're statistically again we're losing a generation of film of film goers. I think it's crazy because Friday film specials got mm. got me into films, mm. and that'll be the perfect thing to go to young filmmakers mm-hmm. make a low budget film because at BBC it's all CBBS now, isn't it? Because mm. BBC's not mm. it's some prick going around mm. some antique shop and buying something 
That's or that's all it is. I mean, mind you, I am a big fan of Antiques Roadshow. Oh, mate! I mean, that's that's. I have a little routine: Antiques Roadshow, followed by class, chasing classic cars on Quest, followed by uh, The Simpsons, followed by Channel Four News. I think that's yeah. my evening. I mean, that's probably a good thing. But they should yeah. bring back Friday film specials. Now, this, I agree. This fit. Uh, what was I want to talk about? Because obviously, um, listeners are, are really uh, intrigued by the subplot of me making my film, which is not going to be called. Barry needs a piss. That was the. Uh, oh, okay. Good. That was just an example. I was worried about how you'd market that. Yeah. Well, it's got it's a universal subject. Yeah. No, well, no. Just I, I just didn't know whether legally you could uh, have a post that said piss on it in public. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm writing something at the moment, uh, another script, and the title of that might be Barry needs a wee. Maybe. Yeah, not the same, is it? No, it isn't really. A wee no. is anyone an adult saying I need a wee? You think oh, it's a sex offender? Yeah. Um, yeah, funny enough, I think my, I think my dad says that. Quite well, you say in polite company, don't you? But you yeah, just, well, you shouldn't actually say anything. You shouldn't go into toilet, any details. You just go you toilet. Do. Where's the toilet, please? Yeah, but I do think the other day when someone says oh, I'm just off to the toilet, it does imply they're doing a number two. Whereas yes, if they're off, got, you need they're to saying specify, they're going for a piss. Yeah, if you say I'm going for a piss, then it actually, then you know what they're doing. So, yeah, we should not identify any any specifics really. Yeah, maybe but, maybe yeah. go the American way and saying I make a visit to the bathroom. But if you do, the politer you are, you're right. The more it sounds like you're having a shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By not saying you need a wee, your people yeah. were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that will probably be a more interesting podcast. The what is the best way to talk about going to the toilet in different scenarios? Yeah. Is there one sentence that could apply to all of them? Well, I mean, that's anyway, another, yeah, another yeah. day. So, your what was your experience? Um, uh, like on this did you get employed as a director or were you involved with the whole no so um, so I'd done what had happened was I'd, I'd, I'd been a producer for many years and I produced about 40-50 shorts and um, a very bad feature film I produced um, when I was in, in, in Nottingham at university and then um, I, I'd, I'd got really really frustrated making making other people's films so I was very frustrated watching directors uh, have all this success or, or failing and thought you know when I was 35 I think I thought I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go and direct a film. I'm gonna give this a go. So, um, I met a woman called Wendy Bevan Mogg who um, had written a adaptation of a short film. Then we together, we together, or they introduced me to a man called Mike Woodward, who's who was an exec producer on this feature film as well. Um, and he, we managed to get. It was the, it was the bizarrest situation. We, I was on a yacht in Cannes, which doesn't sound cliched enough, and uh, managed we managed to get twenty grand for a short film. Oh great! So. Um, so I made that short film, and off the back of that, I became inspired. Did he get? Did he hand you in a in a sort of leather brief? What's it called? Attaché? No, no, it wasn't. It was. It was. It was. It was better than that. It was wired uh, almost within a week, straight into an wow. account. So yeah, and that was a very lovely man that backed that film actually. And um, joking aside, and then, and um, but anyway, so we then, as a company, I used to have a company with my, my, my best mate Alex Lewis, who now works in film film uh, accountancy. Um, we had this company called Whatever Pictures where we'd made all these films and we went on search for scripts. And uh, I think we got about 100 scripts in. We had various different people working for us reading scripts. Um, uh, several people claimed to have found that script uh, over time. I don't know actually who did in the end. but um, And uh, Alex recommended it to me, so I think you should read this script. And it, and it was brilliant. You know, It was really, really well written, written by um, a guy who's an editor called Steve and a fireman called Tony. And um, it was based on a story they had heard in Australia, 
And um, I, I, the thing I loved about it was it, it was moving and it was funny. And I think um, I, I think what, what the Irish are doing at the moment in, in Irish cinema is exactly that. They're making they're making knowing and clever but very funny films. So they're always about a subject matter. If you get a film like Date for Mad Mary or Sing Street, mm-hmm. they actually have a serious undertone to them. And this was a this is a comedy about a kid dying of heart disease. You know, I spent I spent many hours in Great Ormond Street uh, talking to nurses there. We talked to children that had cardiomyopathy who have since passed away. So we we did take it very very seriously, um, but um, but yeah. So that I mean that's what appealed to me basically. So that's uh, so I, I wasn't I wasn't a gun for hire on on the last film I did. I was a gun for hire. I was a, you know a director who'd been I'd been paid. It was like a TV movie really because the speed of the speed of the development and shooting process was so quick. Yeah, it was more like working on a, on a TV drama really. And but so this this took years. This was five years in the making. I think. Five years, blimey. From 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 getting the script to 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 to, to the last sales at the film festivals, yeah. And, and I was producing it all the way along. Um, apart from when I was on set, and I had a co-producer. So by producing, you mean were you in charge of raising all the funds and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah. So uh, me and a, a great 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 guy called Mike Woodward, uh, lovely man. Uh, he uh, was the director of Barclays Wealth Bank. He was the man I met on the yacht. Uh, he uh, approached some more some more of his clients and uh, said, "Look, I've got this film idea." And I had to pitch in, in, at a lunch of, of what was known as high net worth individuals, so people with lots of money, uh, and and uh, a few of them backed it. Yeah, great. Including, say- including David, Mor- you know the actor David Morrissey, his brother Paul oh, Morrissey. Yeah. So his brother Paul Morrissey uh, uh, put in in kind support, so a very large of in kind support, which included hotel rooms and cars and all the rest of it. Can so you we say what the budget was, or is it top secret? Uh, it's not top secret, really. No, I mean uh, I, I think uh, I think the distributor would. Would hate me to say, but it was the final budget was one hundred and sixty-eight thousand pounds. That's quite low. I thought it'd be more than that for for Super Sixteen. Yeah, it certainly was, and um, I can even tell you how it was how it was set up that money because it was it was it was one hundred and fifty thousand pound um, SEIS scheme. So it was a senior enterprise investment scheme. So it had a tax credit, mm-hmm. a tax break attached to it. So the investors didn't risk very much, and then um, and then we got the UK tax credit, which is uh, about roughly about twenty percent. Okay. So, so we we used we used tax incentives to make it, but I mean, there's a couple of films I've made since, like Nina Forever, uh, which is a film a line produced, and Breakfast with Johnny Wilkins. So they used the SEIS. Well, I think I think the budget of films is dropping even more now. I mean, I think your your budget. Is, well, I've got 160 pounds so far. I think 160 pounds could be actually a world breaking record. Well, not, I'm not going to start. I've got more than that. I'm um, more a, a micro. I've been listening to lots of micro budget film. I mean, it's basically you just pay whether you pay your crew or not, or how much you can pay people. That's it. Yeah, I mean, on, 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 I know this is supposed to be light-hearted this uh, <laughs> this podcast, but on a serious note, you don't want to end up being being done by the HMRC for not paying the minimum wage. And yeah. also, that, the, the two bottom lines are: you don't want to go to prison for for not paying people the right amount, and you don't want to hurt anyone on set. And I think you've got to look after your crew, uh, and and so you have a legal obligation, obviously, and a moral obligation not to kill any members of your of your crew or maim any of them. And joking aside, that does happen on set. So really, you can make something for nothing, but you're going to have to be careful about how you go about it. And and and, the, and really, without sounding cynical, the bottom line is you've got to get your crew to sign away their rights. Yeah. Uh, in that in that way. Um, uh, but yeah, hundred. I mean, I'm sure it's doable. Well, sixty pounds. I'll have more than that. I'll have more than that, bros. Don't worry. I think I think um, Planet of the Apes was three hundred and fifty grand a day. I think their budget. Wow. Yeah, thirty five grand an hour. It's different now because the whole the um, 
shooting on digital as opposed to on film, and you must have shot your stuff recently. Yeah, we, shot, we shot, shot on an Alexa. The recent, the recent. Well, I'd love to always shoot on film because the texture of thirty-five mil is amazing. But I think, I think, um, weirdly enough, I, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed by Canon, Canon C five hundreds and C three hundreds. I think they have more of a film look than the Alexa for some bizarre reason. I think yeah. they have a they have a softer, uh, more contrasty look. And the Alexa actually, I find a little bit. Um, I don't know. It's the way it's used, isn't it? But I, I'm, I, I'm. I mean, a friend of mine recently did a million, a million and a bit film on a C three hundred with with very expensive lenses, but it looks it looks absolutely amazing. But two of my favourite films, Blue Ruin, which is basically a low budget film, while the bloke went on to make Green Room, and right. um, they bought a C three hundred because they thought it'd be cheaper to buy it yeah. on yeah. their credit card. So they yeah. spent, you know, what was it? Well, it must have been about ten grand, I think. Yeah. And then shot that on that, and Blue is the warmest colour. Shot on C three hundreds as well. Is it? Yeah. Which well, is it's that's an enormous film in terms of its success. Yeah, but I think they were shooting so much in, in people's faces. I need something quite. And in terms of people, for people who don't know, basically the hierarchy of cameras which you work in TVs, Alexa's the sort of uh, all red, which are these really expensive cameras made by some weirdo. But they're more. They have things like Transformers or action films seem to use red. Uh, Alexa's the, fan, the Phantoms at the very top, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. If you want to be really nerdy, that's the one that shoots that. What is it? A million frames a second or something like that. And then people use the Canon C3, <clears throat> C300s or now Sony's FS7s. I'm seeing a, a lot of those in use. And then right down to really low budget stuff's just DSLRs. Like the 5D really changed in the Canon 5D. Yeah, well. I mean, I'm going to completely contradict myself here but um, because I've just done exactly what I'm about to uh, 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 um, criticise. But I do get a lot of people saying to me, especially students, so look, sorry, I just say that you, you as well now you teach at a, a film school. I teach at a, a, <clears throat> I do teach at film, various film schools. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I uh, le- lecture at various. So I teach directing and um, producing. Okay. At various film schools. But yeah. So what what does happen is you get a lot of students who say I've got I've got this red camera and you're like great what's the story and then they go yeah but I've got this red camera and you're like yeah what's the story mm. and they're like, well we've got this great camera and we've got this slider and you're like I couldn't care less really actually really what you're going to shoot on what's the story and I think a lot of people get obsessed about technology and, and especially men particularly and um, and uh, yeah it, it, instead of actually thinking about the performance of the actors and and um, and the story is the story interesting that's the bottom line isn't it I think it's a film I think our friend Paul's in the first episode showed me a film called The Puffy Chair which is part of the, that mumble core um, bunch of filmmakers who are these American filmmakers who made things for so low budget and this was shot on a DV cam which is just basically yeah. tapes I think before mm. that came along and and not really lit properly but the sound was alright and the story and the characters were brilliant mm-hmm. and the fact that it went in and out of focus I, after the first five minutes my it's like closure, it's like walking out into the dark I think the first five minutes you're getting accustomed to it and then you're in then if the story's got you absolutely I mean Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton are in a, <clears throat> a shot on a format that is uh, probably 9.5mm I'm sure someone will correct this is if we're wrong but it was a it was a, a format that's even worse than VHS but that stuff's still worth millions in terms of uh, it's uh, library you know it, yeah it, it's, it's so it, it, it shouldn't be your format really I, I think the camera should be the camera you use like the sound equipment <clears throat> should be uh, lightweight uh, and easy, easy to move around, especially doing low budget and being able to work at very, very low light, really. And that—that's what's changed so much is that we we now have we do we do have a, equipment 
which can go in very, very low light, um, is. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Batteries last a very long time. And having read, an, read various different interviews recently with people quite high up in the lighting world, um, including the guy who designed the Kina Flow, uh, we're looking more and more at just using practical lighting. So the old days of, of, of huge you know, uh, teams of sparks and big lights, you know, big 10K HMIs all over the place trying to replicate daylight. We will still need those key lights to go through windows, but I think when we're, when we're, when we're doing interior scenes, we can just use practical lighting. We don't have to use... And now they're, they're, they're designing light bulbs that, that can be dimmed. They've got, they're actually designing light bulbs that can d- direct light in a certain... Uh, angle yeah. so um, <clears throat> and this all actually just drives drives costs down and, and um, so even though we're going through this period of time where it, it actually is a bit of doom and gloom for independent film uh, in this country particularly we are on the other hand getting this changing technology um, and the digitisation this you know we're going into this uh, new industrial revolution um, and uh, that is actually driving costs down so it is quite an exciting time I think once once we've got the, I mean, we can go on to distribution a little bit later if you want, but once we get the distribution models working, like Spotify, you know, because we're, we're in this strange transition period at the moment where, like, you know, iTunes, do you ever watch a film on iTunes and it, it, it will work very well? And how do you find, you know, lots of people say, I can't find this film online. And so they go to piracy because they can't actually find it. I think once we, once we sort out the distribution models and we're able to distribute our own films, then we're suddenly looking at, you know, for 10 grand, you can, in terms of equipment, you can go out and make your own film and distribute it to a global market. That is really exciting. I don't know why YouTube used to be able to sell your stuff if you had over a 1,000 users, and they took it off now, mm-hmm. which is crazy, because you think YouTube would be the perfect thing for flogging your mm-hmm. film on there. Well, Vimeo, <clears throat> Vimeo certainly does that, and... Um, and uh, now these days you have to use an aggregator. In fact, there's a talk on um, uh, later on this month by an aggregator that I Can use. Can you explain what an aggregator? Oh, is? An aggregator, aggregators, uh, also known by distributors as aggressors, I think, because in recent years uh, the big sales agents and distributors in the UK, like uh, Metrodome, um, and I think recently Fusion Sales, I think as well, have gone bust. They've gone under. So these these 
the way the way the model works is the cinema takes seventy percent of your revenue mm-hmm. when you have a film at the cinema, or between fifty and seventy. Your distributor then takes fifty percent of your sales, and then your sales agents takes twenty percent. That leaves you like hardly anything left. So mm-hmm. filmmakers have never made money. Lots of people around filmmakers have made money, and so these guys are going out of business, which is very sad for the people that have worked all their lives in that business, and, and some of them are good friends. And they're being replaced by something called an aggregator. And an aggregator is a company that can uh, take your film and then they'll place it with uh, Hulu, Google, Amazon Play, or Amazon, I mean, Google Play, Amazon, all those all those companies, uh, Netflix, um, who else is there out there? That's quite a lot of them, that's um, fine. That lot. Yeah. They'll place them with those companies and uh, they take a cut of revenue. Um, so they're acting like a sales agent. Now, these, these guys have cornered the market because you can't get onto iTunes without going through an aggregator. Okay. But um, rumours, I've heard rumours, and whether they're true or not, um, I'm sure your listeners can try and find this out, that Amazon now is allowing you to upload your own, your own films onto it. There's a new thing they're trying to do, isn't there? I, I got an email from Amazon saying, um, just, they're trying to rival, rival YouTube. Mm-hmm. I don't know enough about it, I need to look into it more. So... Someone like someone like Amazon and someone like Netflix were worth nothing once because all they were was shop windows. Mm. So any other shop window could have come along. And I think Amazon or Netflix particularly went, hang on, you know, we could be replaced by someone tomorrow. We need to make our own content. So Netflix decided, I mean, I think next year they're making 80 feature films. They're making like £7 billion worth of, 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 of feature films and, and TV, which is, which is killing off a large proportion of our industry in some ways. In some ways, it's really good for our industry because there's such high employment in the film business mm. at the moment. But yeah, they're they're making their own content, and um, and so these other guys, yeah, they're, they're thinking and girls, they're thinking, yeah, we need to uh, we need to make our own content as well, but we can't afford to make it. So what do we do? We get other people to make the content for us. The problem is, is you've got to wade through, you know, tons and tons of crap films to find the good ones, and um, and. But yeah, the, the future is exciting. We're going to be able to make our own films. We're going to be able to distribute them, and we're going to be able to take all the all the cash ourselves. And what you'll end up doing when you when you distribute a film is you'll end up spending all the money on PR rather than having all the money taken away from you by a distributor or sales agent. Mm. So do you, I think they're getting better. Then it sounds like you haven't enjoyed the whole uh, film industry process and your experience of it. I think. Um, I think. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you. I don't know how you can tell that. Um, I think <laughs> I think I became a little bit obsessed, and I think we all do become a little bit obsessed about trying to make these sort of like amazing films. I, I got into business because I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker and actually make films that change the world. And I was really into the Putman era, David Putman as a, as a producer, who made amazing films like The Mission mm-hmm. um, and, um, and and filmmakers like Ken Loach, who actually changed the world. You know, they actually changed the law in the same way that Blue Planet at the moment is changing the, world, oh, the way we use plastic. Um, and I think I got a little bit lost on the way exactly what I was supposed to be doing in it. But I think what is what it what has been very hard for a lot of us recently is the way the film industry has changed so rapidly. It was you know within five years I didn't recognise the film business. Film had gone, digital had come in. You know very young people were making stuff that looked amazing with these really cheap cameras, and um, we have to adapt super super quickly. And um, and. Uh, so yeah, I have I have found I found it frustrating. Also, we are we are going through a period now where a lot of people have gone to prison for fraud um, and fiddling the tax credit. So investors in the city are not that are not that keen to invest in films. So it's a tricky period of time. But I'll, but my the thing that keeps me positive is how cheaply we can make a film. The new film I'm writing at the moment, 
um, I think could be made for well under 100 grand. And that's quite that's quite exciting. That's great. Mm. What is that about? Is it top secret still? Uh, it's, it is slightly top secret, um, just because it's a bit of a unique idea. But, um, but I will tell you one thing that I've done in designing the film is <clears throat> I was working on a show in Ireland with a great, great bunch of writers and, and crew, uh, a show called Red Rock, which goes out on the BBC. Um, and uh, it was a very low-budget soap, and then it became a late-night drama. And um, one thing we are always being told by the producers is we had to stick with our parameters. Uh, parameters in the film business, like, on, on a soap opera, you can only do one day out on location, you can only have one driver, you can only have five extras. And so it, it means it's quite a challenge to shoot this sort of thing. And I thought, why not, as a line producer and a director, why don't I approach my f- the writing process uh, with the parameters in my head to say no more than ten casts, no more than 10 days shooting, no more than 10 locations, no more than 10 crew. And so I've just come up with these parameters and put them on myself. And it's, it makes it a challenge to write, but I know for a fact that it's going to be a hell of a lot easier to make. Mm. Because I'm not... And I've also... The other rule I'm trying to do is try and make as many of the locations exterior, exterior day or city locations exterior night. And then we don't need a huge amount of lighting as well. So... That's that's the idea behind. behind I mean, it's that. what you do in micro-budget films, as in my film, trying to find a way of using three or four locations and keep on using those in the film without and keep it interesting rather than looking at it's the same. Yeah, so to place what, over again, over and over again. What I see constantly is um, people uh, saying, "Oh yeah, I've written a film in one room," and then you you know, and having just made a film that was pretty much in one room in a police cell, it is very very hard to keep people interested in one room. It's also having shot in police cells on a, on, a, on a continuing drama, I know there's only so many ways you can film in a police cell. There, there literally is only so many and, and lots of people will be there, I'm sure I could come up with a new way. You can't, you know. You can, there's only so many angles you can do. So I think it's a mistake to try and set, thing, set something just in one room mm. uh, because what makes a film cinematic is, 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 is landscapes and big vistas and drama and, you know. And, um, yeah. I've, I've just seen some things fail that were set in one room. So I've tried to do the opposite of that with a script and I've, set, I've tried to set it all outside. Yeah. And London's an amazing... I mean, London is incredible, you know. It's like, what an amazing architectural feast we have in London. And we don't ever, as filmmakers, ever take advantage of it, I don't think. We don't... We don't. I mean, when you get when you get Bollywood filmmakers come here, they always want to film in front of Buckingham Palace mm. or in front of a red letterbox you've got to think about your global audience because British people don't really watch British films but in Europe and America and the Commonwealth they love British films and they love British culture and and all the things that signify Britain so we should probably take more advantage of that I'm guilty of that as well put some fish and chips in it put some fish and chips in it yeah like a dodgy politician you know a bit of racism you know all the the real things that make us British Mr Bean yeah Mr. Bean. Picture Mr. Bean. Well, actually, joking, joking aside, Mr. Bean does does take advantage of all that. When I um, taught English as a foreign language before I started doing stand-up, I'd ask them to write down one lesson. I used to all churn out the same lessons over and over again. Yeah. What they thought, you know, their ideas of Britain and what fam- famous people they like. And it, it literally would be Princess Diana, the Queen... Mr. Bean, that's a top. Mr. Top Bean, group. the Beatles weren't in there then. Yeah, before, but then Mr. Bean was more famous yeah. than the Beatles. Yeah, it? that's why he's so so rich, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it? It's break time. Time to have a break. All the talking, it's too much. I just want to have a little bit of music in the middle to calm myself down. Now I'm ready to get back to the podcast.
So what's the questions you get asked most by your uh, students? Uh, uh, why, why, why are you depressing us so much with these statistics <laughs> about the film business? We thought we were going to be millionaires, sir. Uh, no, uh, the, the question I get asked so much, I don't know. I don't There's know. no There's money. There's no money, is it? I mean, it's just an artistic. Well, no, I mean, statistically, if you make a low-budget British film, you will not make any money. I think. I think. I think it was. Only 7% of British films made in the last 10 years made a pound at the box office. And something like 20% didn't even actually get to the cinema at all. So if, if you have a film released that you've made, you need a big pat on the back, you know. Um, but I don't, I don't know what they asked me, actually. I think, I think they're all, they all want a magic formula. They all want to know. And I think, I think a lot of students don't realise that it's actually extremely hard work that gets you, that gets you success. You know, you can be you could be extremely talented, but you still got to work very hard. And the yeah. film business is one of the hardest business to work in. You know, with the hours we do, and the uh, and the lack of thanks we get for what we do, and it, there's a lot of narcissists in it as well. So you've got to, you've got to fight, you've got to wade through a lot of um, bullshit to, uh, to to find the real the real people in it. So, I mean, that's why yeah. part of the reason I'm doing this is that when I've made stuff. Uh, and I've done stuff on quite bigger sets a bit. I've all I always enjoy the small crew, mm-hmm. the, the skeleton crew. Mm-hmm. Me too. And yeah. I think there's, there's something in that. If you've got a bit where the hope it is is that you've got the script that works, but you've also you've got that flexibility to try stuff. Mm. You tend to get more footage down if you've got more time to do it. Yeah. You haven't got people who. I mean, people. Well, you know, costumes and makeup are brilliant, but mm. sometimes for low budget films, all the times you have before each, uh, each take of someone checking something mm-hmm. half the time you think you don't need to check yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just people doing their jobs and the time that's why I love I love working with the, this Irish crew I've just been working with they are just unbelievable they work I mean we shot 21 pages on one day and that, and that's a really high quality drama that goes that's out on to time BBC I mean, it wasn't. It was horrible, and then I nearly felt like I was going to die. Was it a twelve-hour day though? Was it? A... It was a ten, 10 hour plus one, so it was an eleven-hour day. But um, we were supposed to be averaging ten to fifteen hours, a, a, a pages a day or minutes per day. But they, they are, they are, they're exactly like that. They don't. What's the point in double checking everything fifteen times? You know, if if the audience is looking at that collar sticking up, then they're not watching the thing anyway. Mm. But also, I mean, there's a difference between TV and film. On film, you do have to check absolutely everything because it's going to be 100 foot wide on the wall mm. and you're going to see it all on a film. If you're making TV, then obviously, all right, you might have big big TVs, but um, I'm, not, I'm not saying rush anything. I'm not saying and you've got to be professional. But yeah, there, there's a lot of people that can fanny about. And I agree, that small crew, it's like going to war, isn't it? You become such good friends and, um, and that ability to be able to improvise and experiment and, um, and as long as there's no one... Precious. If you've got somebody who's really precious and takes their time, time, so much time to do something, it can be counterproductive to your creativity. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. You know, I do, I do have a, a slap dash attitude sometimes, which go, which is one of my, one of my biggest faults. Um, but yeah, you, you're better off, better off getting on with it and doing it rather than not doing it at all. Yeah. You know? right. Yeah. In terms of my in terms of performances, stuff you've done when it's relaxed and everyone's relaxed is quite small. You mm. can sometimes get some magic which you can't really get. When you're working with a big crew, mm. you can't, there's no t- chance to, time to improvise, and there's no time. There's, there's or less. A lot of time they don't give you that space to do the extra takes if it's a lot. You know, time yeah. is precious. And sometimes in performances, my experiences, you just the extra free one, the time to get a free take at the end, yeah, and get them to try some. Just you know, just try it. You say Absolutely. That's when you get the stuff that's in. Absolutely, and I think I, I know for a fact, having directed a lot of kids 
um, TV and kids comedy and, and two kids films is that teenagers particularly you'll get you'll actually get their best work in the first or second take uh, because their performance will generally go downhill afterwards but then if you let them muck about and uh, try lots of different things that you, you're right that's when you can get the magic <clears throat> and you know adults are adults are similar you know mm. the thing I find when I'm directing getting a good performance is my concentration has to be absolutely completely 100% um, focused on that monitor and then my headphones on to be able to give an opinion on whether opinion uh, whether performance is good or not you've got to as a director I think go into your own into your own zone and um, be absolutely focused on that person's performance and uh, hypersensitive to the meaning of what they're saying and the emotion that that character's supposed to be giving and um and I find it very hard you know if I'm I'm I'm, I'm a bit of an I'm a bit of a you know attention deficit disorder I'm very fidgety sort of like and I find it hard to concentrate um but I'm 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 sort of like you know practicing more and more of that sort of focus on a performance and I love it I really enjoy it getting trying to get a, a trying to get a great performance out of someone is um and and I think actors really enjoy it they respond to it really well as well you know it's not all about the picture it's not about moving the camera around it's not about it's not all about that it's mm. about storytelling about people in it and that's why I say to my students you know at the end of the day making a film's quite easy you've got to shine a light on someone uh, and get them to pretend to be someone else oh and then film it and then you just project that on the wall but you know it's the storytelling and the, and the, and the writing and the, it's the other stuff which is actually harder which is, which is so we've got this amazing generation which can film anything because they've got all the equipment but it's, it's whether they can whether they can write write the stories. That's, that's what that's I think, something. watching stuff. Uh, maybe it's me being nostalgic, but I do think sometimes when you look at the old TV programmes, unfortunately old Cagney and Lacey... And, and oh, Cagney, the, the, that's, that's what I grew up with, yeah. Writing yeah. on that was absolutely but brilliant. That's what I grew up with, Cagney and Lacey, Magnum P.I., Miami Vice, um, James Garner in, um, in um, the Rockford, the Rockford oh, Files. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we that you were right. Each time there was a brilliant... It was brilliantly written, it was brilliant, um, Hill Street Blues... It was a great story, and um, and that's what uh, kept us focused. And it's it's that the, the great filmmakers are the ones who can tell a story. You know, I mean, I mean, you see it so often on on TV. I mean, I'm watching Spiral at the moment, which is a French police drama, and the writing on that is absolutely brilliant. Oh, yeah, and, 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 and the and, and the performance is amazing. You know, I'm utterly convinced of these characters. You know, and um, yeah, it's not it's not it's not an easy thing to do. It really isn't. Now going back to scripts and things, what is the traditional feature film length script, ninety pages. Yeah, so we work we work um, generally on a piece of software called Final Draft, which um, uh, mimics the old Warner Brothers or whatever it was um, script format, and uh, that is a page a minute generally. Um, <clears throat> it doesn't really work when you've got something like a uh, uh, so like Baby Driver or one of those films where Edgar Wright because they're so quick. Yeah, I imagine the word count doesn't always quite add up. Um, but yeah, we work on we work on a page a minute, and a feature film, by its definition through distributors, is normally a film over sixty minutes, um, and a short film is a film under thirty minutes, and then a television drama would be you know between thirty and sixty. What happens if your film is between thirty and sixty? Screwed. Uh, it's just a bit of a, no, you're not screwed. I think it's Shane Meadows made an hour long film um, between thirty. And 60, I don't know. It'd just be hard to sell, probably. Sixty one minutes, the dream. Six. <laughs> 60 minutes, yeah. I mean, there's some great 70-minute films out there. There's some really great 70-minute films. I mean, but, I mean, um, I, I, I mean, it's really bad. I haven't seen the new Blade Runner film because I saw the running time and I just thought, oh, I don't know if I can sit there for that long. 
I will. I will see it, of course. Uh, but um, but yeah, you, you you've got. I think if you're going to do low, but there's some really good rules. I I I have for you. Yeah, well, a, tell me the rules. Tell well, me the rules. Well, Making a low budget film, do not try and do anything that Hollywood can do, because you'll do it shitter than they do it. So basically, CGI, CGI snakes. And it, and it's really interesting when you look at the statistics on what makes money as well. The biggest making, the biggest, the highest grossing films for the lowest amount of money are faith films, so films about God, mm-hmm. and horror films. Okay, horror films don't need famous people in, and faith films have a market they're going to buy. It. So the rules are: don't make anything that Hollywood could make. So don't make a thriller, don't make an action movie, unless you're going to deliberately make it crap. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure it's short. Don't go for the epic, you know, two-hour film. Between seventy and ninety minutes should be your target uh, mm-hmm. range, uh, and well, that's it. That's the two rules, really. No, the rules. They're the rules, really. I think. I think when, when someone's saying, "What shall I make as a short film?" That's what I would. Uh, sorry, as a feature film. That's what I would say. Don't don't try and copy Hollywood and make it nice and short. Something like the Jesus in my garden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The new Jesus in my garden. Yeah, it's outdoors. Or a horror, maybe a, a Christian horror film would be the um, ultimate ultimate winner, really. Oh, Jesus comes to save the day. I have to be careful here because my sister is a vicar, so I don't want to uh, oh, okay. get in trouble with my sister. But um, but uh, but yeah, it should. It, yeah, a, a, gen, joking aside, a Christian horror film would probably have an enormous market. Yeah, Did you also know, interestingly, that men and women go to see horror equally? You'd think it'd be more of a boys' thing, wouldn't you? A lot of girls like horror films. Yeah, and do you know part of the reason they reckon is because it's a, a really good date film because you're going to end up like holding on to each other. Ah. And also, people over thirty generally don't go and see horror films, and this is to do with pushing boundaries. So young people like to push their boundaries as they until they get to about thirty, because your brain fuses between the age of twenty five and thirty apparently. So um, yeah, so that yeah, horror, horror my order. Brain fu- my brain stopped. So, so you know when people say, oh, "I feel like I'm still twenty seven. Yeah. It's because it's 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 that's the apparently the time at which your brain stops growing. I've heard. I mean, it's quite yeah, complete I, it used rubbish. Yeah, I used to say it was. I read somewhere it was your brain. It's in your early twenties. Yeah, forming. which is why Jimmy Savile dressed the way he did. You know, because he obviously still thought he was, you know, twenty-seven. Yeah, so that's why people always dress to the same age as twenty-seven. Yeah, but then when the when is the transition? To what I want to know when old people wear beige. Oh, and and, and zip up people, zip, zip up cardies and yeah, comfortable but, but shoes. People are. I've still. I wear comfortable shoes, but yeah. I um the beige thing. You've got your. I don't even know what they are, Bruce. <laughs> some weird sandals. But when because I thought oh, the beige is going to die out. But you know, when I was twenty, I thought this must just be the generation. My grandparents won't. You know that. And now beige is there's still a lot of beige. Light brown, light brown chinos. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, it, I know. I know where you live in 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 in, um, in the Isle of Wight. Benbridge is a it's quite a well known retirement area. Yeah, and Brexit stronghold. You get and to see um, the full, and that is you know, it is very 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 beige there. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. go into a charity shop and they close ninety. I mean, in fact, the whole yeah everything, but even even the ornaments tend to be a, a lighter brown maybe color. Yeah, why? What maybe, is that? Maybe it is because those people grew up in the in the fit like grew up in the fifties, and maybe because of the Second World War, all the color had gone out of the world. And um, and stuff, maybe maybe there wasn't colour dye. Yeah. And they're just used to a light. And maybe everything was khaki because it was all army surplus. So I, I don't want there to be a time that when old people stop wearing ties and they start wearing tracksuits and it won't be... If beige disappears... That is the I'll weird be. thing now when you see you do see old, old ladies covered in tattoos. That is odd. That That's going to be the new generation, isn't it? They're going to have like, you know... The new generation going to have what they call... Um, uh, I, can't, I don't want to say it because it's... Not politically correct, but yeah, dodgy, dodgy tattoos. Yeah, and and be wearing 
and have and have those strange earrings that stretch your ears out. Uh, the, so the, like the ears, the post stretch your ear things are one of the worst things. So have some some sort of pink spaghetti hanging off your head. So yeah, you're gonna there'll be a whole generation of people dressed like Amy Winehouse with lots of tattoos. That's gonna be weird, isn't it? Uh, they'll be, really, the, really in weird. approximately 20 years time yeah. the tattoo removing business I'll start investing in it now we'll be earning we'll make tons of money have you got a tattoo? no I've got one what have you got? Yeah. Oh, you've got one homemade one an accident yeah it was in my A level design exam I accidentally stabbed myself with a pen this is it, what and people used to make at school it's called a Pompey s- Dot or something or whatever, <laughs> where you put ink on your uh, compass and drive it deep into your skin to make a the fountain pen. Do you know what the forever. tears mean? Do you know what the tears mean? Kill someone, someone, isn't it kills someone. No, it's each. It's quite sad, really. It's each year you're in Borstal is a tear. I thought it was that you killed someone. No, I think it's. I think it's for. And the bird on your hand isn't that to say you've done time? Oh, uh, is it? Okay. I know an anchor. I know. I'm making these up now. I know an anchor was yeah. if you have an anchor on your arm, it meant that you're a Christian because it was a cross. But you mm. you put it. You do it as an anchor so you cover up um, the fact that you were Christian in case someone who was non-Christian captured you. Back in the day, this is this is good facts here. <laughs> Nothing to do with filmmaking. What else are the main things that you teach these uh, young film students then, apart from story? And, um... uh, I think uh, the uh, fundamentals are where to put the camera. Uh, on the, from from the, from the film business point of view, it's all quite boring and dry. Basically, you know, you've got to think about your audience. You've got to think who you're going to sell it to. Uh, you've got to think about your story. You're, not going, to tr- you're going to try and do something really unique that Hollywood hasn't done. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why comedy is great because Hollywood uh, anyone could do comedy in, in any format so that all that business side of stuff is probably quite obvious but a lot of people don't think about it when they're making films and then for the directing point of view it's really about where you put the camera and how you film it and not to cross how not to cross the line and really do you need a tracking shot is a tracking shot is a, is a tracking shot you're just doing it because you want to move the camera or is it, is it a necessary thing yeah, crossing the line if people don't know is a famous thing where if you're filming two people you need to say you can almost draw uh, sort of um, a line straight down the middle of the scene and you're shooting you don't cross that line because otherwise it looks like people are f- uh, it's about eye lines same, yeah so yeah. Like people are talking to each other in the same direction so you're it's, always shooting yeah it's about if, I mean, and, when, and when you see it um, when you see it when it's wrong it's quite amusing um, but also yeah so it, it, making well, someone said to me years ago you know you're constructing realism I think it was part of my degree actually uh, I think it was Robert Fisk that said that actually it, it was uh, const- you're constructing realism and to construct realism you have to stick to certain rules and um, and yeah so you're having to explain to students that you can't just put the camera wherever you want but also think about why you're moving the camera like you know Steven Spielberg was the, was the master of, and so was Hitchcock the master of the tracking shot but he, they were done for a reason they weren't just done because they were like oh I'll just do a tracking shot they were tracking with the camera to try and get lots of different shots in so ultimately you've got to, to get to get a really or an effective tracking shot would be a shot that get, gets, a, gets a wide shot, a mid shot, and a close up all in one. And um, the show I've just been working on in Ireland, geez, the operators on that show are unbelievable. So skilled at being able to move the camera and get as many shots within within a scene. You know, to cover, get as much coverage as possible. So and then with low budget filmmakers, the camera I've got, which I'm hoping to film, which is the work. Basically, what I'm doing is I've, I've bought the kit I've accrued. I'm going to use that to film one. So. None of the but none of the money goes on the kit. That's already there. Yeah. Good lenses. Good lenses is. Yeah, the, my lens. I've got a GH five, which is one of these cameras where they think called IBIS, called in body in stabilization, mm-hmm. which means that it's almost as good as tra- you know, 
all much as good as gimbals now. Mm-hmm. And gimbals are the new things they have. So we used to have Steadicam first of all, mm-hmm. and they just things you the don't. Mo- the Movi is used a lot now. But actually, do you know what? If I'm tracking with someone, if I'm going down a corridor following someone, I actually want it handheld. Yeah. I don't want it smooth like a scene from The Shining. Yeah. Uh, I don't. I don't. I want it. If, if it's drama, I want it to be bouncing around the place. And see, I, I, I mean, I think you can use them in the wrong in the wrong context sometimes, you know. And actually, you know, but you know, yeah. But each director's different. I know. I know that I worked on a TV show. I won't name it, but I was pretty much fired because I kept on doing handheld stuff. And the rule was on this particular soap opera, you couldn't do handheld. Mad Men. No. <laughs> but um, but yeah, there there are there's yeah. There are certain shows where they say they will never do handout, and I just think I, I, I'm from the Ken Loach, for, you know, school of filmmaking. Ken Loach hasn't used a dolly or a track or a crane in 25 years. Yeah, he's the most selected filmmaker at Cannes, and his last film made a lot, hell of a lot of money by Daniel Blake. And um, yeah, he's he, he, as far as he says, it's about the actors. Yeah, it's about the story. It's not yeah. about movies. It's not about the camera. Now there's camera camera people all over the place, including my friend Una. Who shot uh, Social Suicide? His dad is incidentally Chris Menges, who shot Kez, and they, I mean, they completely disagree. You know, they think it's it's about it's about the story, but it's also about getting that camera moving. So it depends depends which you know can't, school of thought you come from. You can't please all the people all the time, Bruce. No, you can't. They no, can't. No. I mean, it's definitely going to be no dolly shots in my film. No, but I mean, I mean, we, I mean, you can maybe put the camera on a skateboard and wheel that backwards. The skateboards aren't that good. I tell you what, wheelchairs though, amazing. Let the, let the, let, gently let the wheel, the tyres of a wheelchair down ever so slightly. That makes the best tracking vehicle ever. There's loads of wheelchairs on the Isle of Wight. Yeah, that's one thing we're not short of. Yeah, we're going to nick one of those outside. Uh, you're gonna say, so, so you're going to shoot this on the Isle of Wight, are you? Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Because you've got. And can you tell me? Can you tell me um, uh, how long the script is at the moment? Well, I've ri- I've planned. I've almost got it out. I've written ten pages of it. Ten pages. I okay. need to do another so 10%, eighty pages. Ten percent. Yeah. Uh, and um, and is it um, good? I, I'll, I've looked forward to reading. It's a that. comedy. I'll tell you more about it I'll, um, after this interview. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I think that'll be uh, enough for now, Bruce. That's great. I'll probably speak to you again at some point. If that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. What what's your are you on social media and all that stuff? Or I am on social media. I've just I've just discovered it Instagram and uh, discovered how you got to be careful what you put on it. I went to a party in Benbridge uh, yeah. on Saturday night. Yeah, and there was a hot there was a Swedish party and there was a hot tub. And my mate Anders, uh, he's and, and JC Abrams. I think you know the Abrams. They were they, they I took a photo of him in the his hot tub in his underpants. And as a joke, I tagged Swingers Party on the on my Instagram page. I'm now being followed by swingers clubs around the world. Oh, fantastic! So, uh, Spanish, Italian. So yeah, so I'm on, I'm, I'm on Instagram, even though I don't quite know how to use it. And uh, Facebook, I, I was a big Facebooker. I just moan about Donald Trump on Facebook. Now. Are you on Twitter as well? Are you? I am on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And then I just use that to moan about uh, the conservatives and Donald Trump. As What's well. your? Is it Bruce Webb? Bruce Webb, two thousand and five. I think pretty much always. When Incidentally, you were, when you were born. Yeah, but, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Incidentally, I am friends with all the Bruce Webbs in the world, and we all look like each other. It's really odd. They mainly seem to be fishermen on the coast of America, but I've noticed that several of my friends have become friends with the Bruce Webb, who's an Alaskan fisherman, who happens to look a lot like me. So if you are going on any of these social media accounts, just make sure it's the right Bruce Webb, because you might end up becoming friends with a fisherman. Not there's anything wrong with that. Bruce Webb, 2005. Five. Is that for all of them? I think so, yeah. Um, and, and your film I'll put a link to your film on my um, on the uh, Marit Makes a Movie 
Facebook page, so you can go and buy it on Amazon and watch it and enjoy it like I did. I can do. I can give you both the links. Actually, there's another film, Social Suicide and Beyond and Endor, and then there's a short film that's out there for free as well. So yeah, I'll put it. I'll put it on there. So you can have a look. Well, thank you so much for your time, Bruce. It's, it's been, been great. A ple- it's been a pleasure. I, I wish you all the luck of the world with this film. Thanks, dude. All right, um, I need to get a tag a tagline for finishing it. It will stay hygienic last time. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the one who who's who's was that's all folks was that um, you yeah, know. you can't use that. Really. No, but who actually? Which company came up with that? Uh, it was Warner Brothers, wasn't it? Was it Warner Brothers? The Looney Tunes part of Warner Brothers. Um, you need to have a sign off. Um, happy shooting. Well, that sounds like some. That could be some really horrific massacre, couldn't it? Yeah, um, trace back to this. And then I get called in saying, oh, I, li- I listened to this podcast at the end, did happy shooting, I went and killed about 8,000 people. Before more. I knew it, yeah. I was so influenced by the podcast. Okay, don't, it. don't, it's going to be this. Okay, good luck, Anne. Don't kill people. Yeah, happy shooting, but not guns. Yeah, that's it. All right, thanks, bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.